Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay, and this is Reality Asserts Itself. We're continuing our series of interviews with the former Baltimore Black Panther, Eddie Conway. And in his book, Martial Law, The Life and Times of a Baltimore Black Panther, after spending a great deal of time in solitary confinement, Eddie, in his book, writes this, a book I should add was, that was written while he was in prison. The time in the hole had forced me to quiet reflection and contemplation. I resolved to never give up my struggle for freedom for me or my people, so the penitentiary represented to me just another level of struggle. Now joining us again in the studio is Eddie Conway. Thanks for joining us again. Okay. You write here, in the part I just quoted about continuing the struggle, uh, and, and elsewhere, a few other places, you write about the decision, it's almost a decision in a sense, to defend your humanity. Uh, I mean, if prison's anything, it's about dehumanizing people. And, and you, you, you don't get dehumanized. I mean, even after 44 years, I know when I, I, I'm around when other people meet you and they ask you, you know, how are you so calm? How, why aren't you furious and bitter? Um, why aren't you? Or are you? Well, <laughs> sometimes I question that myself, but no, I'm actually not. I think at, at early on, I decided, well, the first thing was that there was a line in the sand as far as I was concerned, and my position was that I, if the police didn't bother me, I wasn't going to bother them. Uh, it took us seven years to, to reach the, the guards, agreement. Yes, yeah. the guards. Uh, it took us seven years to reach that agreement, and finally they decided, well, okay, we're not going to bother you. And at that point, then I decided that uh, I could move away from the the combat mode and that's that's pretty much how I seen it initially when I went into prison I, and I just have to kind of like give you an example the the very first day I got into prison I uh, I sat down in the mess hall to eat and uh, they made everybody get up and leave and I hadn't even have finished my food so I just I continued to eat and uh, they gathered around me and threatened to attack me because I wasn't leaving. And uh, uh, other prisoners came to my uh, uh, assistant and demanded that I be allowed to eat. And I couldn't figure out why you would give a person a plate of food and then halfway through the meal you would just bang on the table and say, get up, let's go. Now I, just, just let me set some context from I know mm -hmm. from the book. Mm -hmm. This is at a time when there's about at least 40 people that are in the Panthers, maybe another 100 want to join the Panthers, mm -hmm. and you're considered you know, one of the important leaders from the, from the yeah. Panthers from this region, so yeah. uh, there's a kind of a drama even the moment you get there. Yeah, you know, so uh, at, at that point, I, you know, I basically decided that, well, okay, you know, y'all are not going to treat me like an animal. And we went back and forth with that until such time that we, we finally had an agreement that they wouldn't treat me like an animal and they would treat me like a human being. And then from that point on, I pretty you're, much you're, could relax and be myself. You're talking after almost seven years seven of solitary years, confinement. Seven years, yes, of, of, of conflicts and, and challenges and uh, refusal to participate in uh, being treated like an animal. When you're in solitary, what have you got? I mean, do you have, uh, can you read? Do you? Uh, that's pretty much all you have. You can read, and I did do uh, too much reading, in fact. What did uh, you read? What did you have? 
I read everything I could get my hands on. I, and uh, initially, I just read a lot of stuff about Black history. I read just read a lot of stuff uh, um, about uh, uh, culture. I read a lot of stuff about uh, world history. Um, people could send you books. Or? Uh, yes, people could send books, and we smuggled books in. And fortunately for me, when I initially got in the prison system, I set up a system, a library. I set a library up in the prison. It was like uh, 2,000 people there, and no library. You know, so I set a library up in two of the cells up in the prison, and uh, and then I set up a, a survival program that would. Uh, allow us to send stuff back and forth over to the people in lockup. Um, and so that worked for me also because I, I actually used it. Um, and so I got books uh, and I, I read and I, I, I held uh, political education classes uh, at night for the, uh, for the rest of the guys that wanted to uh, participate. Matter of fact, a whole uh, something like four or five hundred guys would just be quiet and they would allow for like political education. Um, and so we did a lot of that. Um, and we did have illegal radios that we smuggled around through the back channels of the cells. Uh, so you did get to listen to a program here or news there if something, something, some kind of event happened. Uh, but there were no TVs and there were no pretty much nothing else. Yeah. When you're alone with your books for almost seven years, mm -hmm. um, what happens in terms of your political resolve? And, and, and do you start to wonder, did I make a mistake? And I, well, you know, for me, it, I really took advantage of it. And I think I, I, I studied history. I studied uh, 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 other people's struggles. I studied uh, 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 people's writings and teachings, and I, I, I got a chance to look at people that at that time I thought... Uh, Who made an impression on you? Uh, well, I was always impressed by Che Guevara. I was always impressed by uh, Fidel Castro, uh, Mao, uh, Lumumba. I was even uh, at that time impressed by Jomo Kenyatta, uh, Kwame Krumah, uh, at that time, I was looking at the uh, what was going on with the PLO, what was going on in Mozambique or uh, Angola. I was looking at the struggles that were going, obviously, in Vietnam. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, just basically in, the, um, in Europe, in, the, uh, in Italy, in uh, um, Belfast, et cetera, I was just looking at what was going on in terms of all of those conflicts. And basically, I was studying history. And at some point, I think I got to the point where I just started looking beyond those struggles to try to see back in the past what happened that caused those struggles to happen, what happened that created those conflicts between those people. Uh, and so I, I and end up actually studying history, and I, I kind of consider myself a student of history now, even though it's just on the surface. Um, so 
while you're in solitary for this almost seven years, you're in and out, in and out, like you have a stretch and then you go and something happens and they throw you yeah. back in. Yeah. And while this is all happening, you're actually organizing a local Black Panther organization in the prison. Yes, uh, and uh, a prisoner's labor union. Um, uh, what happened with the union? It was an attempt to organize a straightforward union, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, we did. We, we actually organized the union. The, the, the organizing was successful. The allowance of it to exist wasn't. That, that was one of the reasons they created the little gang to kind of like disrupt that organizing. Yeah, we talked about this in the last, last segment, a gang of sort of young street mm -hmm. gang people that mm -hmm. were used to, by the prison authorities to oppose the political organizing. Yeah, uh, and uh, eventually they locked up all the, the, the uh, union leaders, the union organizers, which of course, obviously I was one of them, uh, and they shut down the, the union because we had, uh, we had followed all the rules. We had followed all the regulations. There was no conflict. We uh, we met the criteria. We were accepted by the union, the 1199E. Uh, we had an outside That's board. That's uh, Yeah. And we actually had a, a, a charter, a constitution in there. And we had met all the guidelines. And we had the, uh, 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 a significant amount of the population had actually signed up for the union. So we even qualified in terms of numbers. And at that point, they did. They created an incident. They uh, being the prison the, authorities. Yeah, the prison authorities created an incident. And initially, we couldn't, couldn't understand why or what was going on. But they, uh, they at that time, then there was actually junkies in the prison population. And they had them climb up to uh, on the walls in the inside the prison at the uh, top of the windows and created a, a a security conflict. They weren't going anywhere, but they were just hanging up in the in the kind of like the rafters up in the ceiling. And of course, it was detrimental because one of them had to fell off. It was like five stories and concrete on the ground. They would have uh, actually injured themselves. But we couldn't figure out why these junkies went, were, were doing that. And of course, they used that to lock everybody up, lock the prison down. Uh, and we couldn't figure out what it was about. But they ultimately, they said that they were up there to support the union. Well, we know they weren't. They never signed up for the union. They were all worrying about getting their drugs. The administration was giving them drugs. And they used them to kind of like uh, bar out the uh, outside. Uh, we had a, a congressman, Perry Mitchell, in fact. Uh, he was our outside advisor. We had uh, the, uh, the person that owned all the, the woman that owned the black radio stations in uh, Maryland. She was our advisor. We had uh, uh, two other uh, high profile uh, uh, representatives, uh, in addition to the president of the uh, 1199E union, and uh, they bought all them out and claimed that they had uh, 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 instigated trouble inside the prison. They were no longer the congressman, of course. They and were the, no the, the union was any. to re represent union work. I mean, prison labor. Yeah, because yeah, you're working. We you're working for minimum like minimum wage. Uh, we was asking for uh, minimum wage. And uh, 
you know, and we thought that was the best way to have prison reform. We thought that, okay, you know, we didn't want to ride like they did in Attica. We didn't want to have practice guerrilla warfare like they were doing in uh, California with George Jackson. We figured that the best way to get prison reform was to get a, a minimum wage. And what they did is they locked up the leaders of the union. They locked and they disbanded the union and they made uh, made it an illegal act to have any union materials or to organize any union in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. From the day you got there, practically, mm -hmm. uh, you didn't follow the maxim, uh, from what I've understood, which is shut your mouth and get along and do your time. Mm -hmm. uh, you're organizing all, you know, almost constantly. Mm -hmm. um, what is that in you? I mean, it, it, you know, you, you would have had an easier time, one would think, if you had shut your mouth and done your time. Well, I, I, I guess the. I guess there was a, a point, and it goes all the way back to probably one of our first interviews, uh, a point in Europe where I realized that there was a problem here in America and a problem in, in, in a sense of how we were treated. Just to remind people, you were in the Army in Germany for three years in Europe. Yeah, and I, at, at that point I decided to come and try to help straighten that problem out. And it just, it, uh, as I, the, the more I worked on it, the worse it appeared. The more I studied it, the, the, the more frightening it was. And I realized that we really had a serious problem. And it extended all the way into the prison system. But, but you don't ever waver. Like, you set yourself down this course and you don't waver. And I mean, you, had, you, you were married and, and to some extent the marriage breaks up, I understand from the book, partly mm -hmm. about the extent of your political commitment. Yeah. You had a son mm -hmm. who you didn't get to see much of. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, um, for me, it was a sense of consciousness and it was a sense that my family was the world and that my family was, was, was larger than my individual uh, uh, family members and that we had, somebody had to have some responsibility in terms of challenging what was happening to us. You know, and I think all throughout history, there's always been people like that. And I guess that it just fell upon my shoulders at some point. Um, kind of late in life, but you know, because I was like 21 or something, when it finally dawned on me that there was problems. Yeah. But lots of people know there's problems, but they, they don't stick their neck out and make the commitment for change that you have? Um, that's, that's probably true because like you say, I mean, uh, a lot of people uh, want to be safe, you know. I think the one thing, uh, you know, especially, I, I, I think probably putting me in prison was probably uh, uh, one of the things that just aggravated that whole situation for me because I did not want to be and, and I, I can't even believe that there was any kind of way I would have ever accepted being treated like an animal. Didn't want to be dehumanized. I, I wasn't. I was a grown man. Uh, and, I, and I looked at humans, you know, as people that should be valued and respected. And I just didn't understand how 
that kind of abuse could happen either outside in the community or even in the prison system. And it, it's, it was just nothing that I was going to tolerate. Okay, yeah. we'll continue. Please join us for the next part of our series of interviews with Eddie Conway on Reality Asserts Itself on the Real News Network.